You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you're having a terrific week. Let me ask you a question. Do you recall the story of the Good Samaritan? Of course you do. You remember a man is hurt, he's lying by the side of the road, and a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan encounter him. And of course, we know that it was the Good Samaritan who stops to help him. So what did the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan all have in common? Sounds like the start of a bad joke, doesn't it? The answer is, they all noticed a wounded man lying on the roadside. Lots of people are good at identifying problems, aren't they? But precious few ever take action. We all think, of course, I would have stopped to be the Good Samaritan. But now, let me ask you another question. And this one is a little uncomfortable. If the skin color of the wounded man was not the same as your own, would you have stopped to help that person? Or would you have hesitated? Uncomfortable, isn't it? Racism comes in many forms. It can be unconscious or it can be deliberate. But in many cases, it's placed in our hearts unwillingly or unknowingly by our upbringing or our culture. As such, it can lead to thoughts and actions that we don't even recognize are racist. But nonetheless, they all flow from the same prejudice. I'm very pleased to offer today's show on the topic of racism in our church. And so, without further ado, let's get to work. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Father Christopher Walsh. He's the pastor of St. Raymond of Pennefort in Philadelphia. Father Chris and I discuss the subtleties of racism, what the church teaches, and how Father Chris has worked to create an inclusive and welcoming environment in his parish that has led to evangelization efforts that have reached far beyond his parish boundaries. This is a show that I have wanted to do for quite some time, but I wasn't exactly sure how to approach it. And I wanted it to be a meaningful conversation with somebody who has a lot of experience in overcoming these boundaries. And so you may notice that at times during this conversation, I may be uncomfortable in the way I'm wording things because I'm trying to be so very careful. But know that it comes from a place of love and respect. And I have tremendous love and respect for Father Chris and the work that he has done with his parish. And I think that you're going to learn as much as I did about how we can all overcome these boundaries and these uncomfortable places within ourselves. So without further ado, here's Father Chris. Okay, well, welcome. Welcome to Advancing Our Church. Welcome, Father Chris. Great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here after uh, listening so many times and, and knowing you for these years that we were able to make this happen. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, Father Chris, for our listeners, uh, has been my spiritual director for a little, little over a year now, I think. And uh, so I've had the great pleasure of getting to know him and uh, learning more about his ministry, which the more I know about you, and then the more I started to read it and do some other exploration, the more different organizations that you're a part of. It's really so impressive. I don't know when you sleep, <laughs> but it's great to have you here. So what I'm going to do just for the sake of our listeners is give a little bit of a, an intro, a little bio, and then we'll go into our conversation today. So Father Chris Walsh is the pastor of St. Raymond of Pennefort Church in Northwest Philadelphia, where he has served for over 13 years. 
He is a professional consultant also with St. John Vianney Center, providing religious workshops and convocations for clergy and religious across the country. He serves priests throughout the United States and Canada in leadership formation, also through the Catholic Leadership Institute. And he provides regular reflections on his parish's YouTube channel, which is growing steadily, the viewers, uh, which is also viewed just around the country. And he provides spiritual direction. Prior to being at St. Raymond's, he was the school minister at Archbishop Wood High School, as well as a parochial vicar at Our Lady of Ransom. Raised in Chester County, he was a graduate of Bishop Shanahan High School. He has a BA in sociology from Temple University and a Master's of Divinity in Systematic Theology from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary. Father Chris received training in the Spiritual Exercises at the Jesuit Center at Warnersville and has preached retreats and days of recollection throughout the country. Welcome, Father Chris. Great to have you here today again. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about uh, your parish at St. Raymond, and also I'd love to hear a little bit about your school. Sure. So uh, this is the parish church that's behind me virtually. I'm not sitting in the choir loft. Our, our parish was founded the day of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Of course, they couldn't build a church uh, because there was no money. There were no resources. The young men from the parish were all heading off to the war. And so they met in a barn. And it wasn't like an old barn that they converted to a church. It was a, a barn Monday through Saturday. They cleaned the animals out. and. Wow. Uh, and, and people sat on, on bales of hay. And then they built this church uh, in 1948. Uh, downstairs was the first school for a few years. And then a few years later, they built. And so I, I often am grateful for the founding pastor, Father Carney, who's buried on our front yard, who was a visionary leader. The, the community at that time was mostly Italian and Irish who were Catholic, mm. uh, but the neighborhood was overwhelmingly Jewish. So one Catholic church, but three synagogues. It's an area that Temple University owned a great deal of property and was actually planning to move out of North Philadelphia up here. They had their football field here, their baseball field, and a lot of property to build buildings. And then decided, I'm told by some pressure from the city, to stay where they were. So that property then became available to be developed, which uh, lots of homes were built. Uh, the neighborhood remained Jewish, Italian, Irish uh, through the 1960s. And then as the, the movement started in Philadelphia, those first post-war suburbs, as folks started moving up, well, everyone sort of moved up. So folks in our neighborhood started moving to other parts of Montgomery County, over to New Jersey, far northeast Philadelphia, you know, bigger homes, more prosperity. And then the folks that were moving in here were increasingly people of color. I, I think our school was almost entirely white in like 1964. Mm -hmm. And then by about 1971, the school was just about entirely African-American. And that has continued. The neighborhood would probably be 90, 95% African-American. Our parish at this point is probably 65% African-American. Uh, we've picked up over the last number of years a lot of you know, Caucasian folks and folks of other ethnicities who, who, who worship here, in addition to lots of folks from the Caribbean uh, and Haiti. Our school was operated since the uh, late 40s. The Sisters of Mercy ran it for many, many years, and then uh, they transitioned out with declining vocations and wonderful lay faculty. And a few years ago, our school joined uh, an association of other 14 parochial schools, parish-based schools, uh, into what became independent mission schools. So right. it's run by a board of, of really entrepreneurs and other community leaders who wanted to see Catholic education in the urban community uh, saved. Our school was doing okay. It wasn't in danger of closing. We've always had decent enrollment and, and, and good financial resources, but, but I asked to join the group just because I realized they were going to bring a whole level of expertise. I love yeah. being a priest, but I know nothing about running a school. And so our school remains open. It's pre-K through eighth grade. It's um, you know about 265 kids today. 
overwhelmingly non-Catholic, it becomes a, a wonderful mission field for us. Much of the parish's evangelization efforts are focused on the school and the kids' parents, and particularly focused on first grade and fifth grade, reaching out to those parents, inviting them to a relationship with Christ, inviting them to be a part of our church. COVID has put a, a hurt on that and what we're able to do, but uh, this year we're, we're redoubling the effort. It's, it's still a Catholic school. We have we had mass last week. We have an after-school prayer group. All the religious imageries there, they're taught the Catholic curriculum. And, and it's a beautiful thing. Even though if kids don't become Catholic while they're in their school, it often happens later. And they certainly have a good experience of, of, of receiving love from the church. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Father, I would. You said it's uh, a Catholic school is a great mission ground. I would imagine you've had some conversions, or you've had some folks who have com- uh, oh, yeah. been brought to the church through that. I would say that of our African American parishioners, somewhere around at least fifty percent, if not sixty percent, have become Catholic either because they were in our school or their children were in our school. And we don't have a policy that you can only be here for three years and you have to become Catholic. That was a thing that many parishes did years ago. But it's through the invitation. It's through the kindness. At this point, it's not like the kids are attending any other church. They're just like the rest of America these days, unchurched. Yeah, we're blessed with with great teachers who talk about the faith, who increase in our kids a desire to know Jesus and to worship and to receive sacraments. And so it happens. Yeah. So again, COVID has put a hurt on it. And sometimes our own priorities have shifted as a staff. Okay, we're going to go more for the larger neighborhood, but we're pretty committed to coming back to the school. I would say in my early years as a pastor, when I was really focused on it and it was a real priority, anywhere from five to 10 of the folks in RCI every year were coming through the school. That's amazing. That's a beautiful ministry. The kind of the main topic we want to discuss today uh, was kind of racism in our church and and how you have combated and fought it, how you've encountered it, how you've worked through it really and and created such an amazing community. You know, just as as by way of introduction, you know, for me, I, I I've been looking for a way to kind of broach this topic on the podcast for some time. But I think like many people, you know, I, I didn't exactly know how to approach it. And I think my own discomfort with it, maybe I don't want to say caused me to avoid it, but I, I didn't know exactly how to how to broach it in a in a in a meaningful way, in a in an appropriate way, and and through our conversation, you and I had you had kind of enlightened me to the to the pastoral letter, open wide our hearts, the enduring call of love, and, and the pastoral letter written by the bishops a few years ago. So I found that document very helpful, and uh, and so I thought that might be a good place for us, you know, to begin the conversation. How do you see? How does the church define racism? Thank you so much, and thanks for willing to have the conversation because. Certainly last summer, there was lots of conversations after the George Floyd death, the protests, and at times the riots. And so racism was sort of in our face, and then it sort of has died out, right? Right. And and folks have sort of let it go. But it's an enduring conversation. I think many of us believe that, you know, because we don't have laws of segregation on our books, everything's good. And I would say that, uh, you know, I was blessed in my life. Early on, my parents had friends who were African-American, uh, went to Temple University that was very diverse, had Black friends. Sure. I, I, I worked in mental health before I entered the seminary, had Black friends, and, and served you know, lots of minority clients. And in the seminary, I had different assignments. And so I would say I was aware of racial tensions. I was aware of stories of prejudice and bigotry. But I don't think I spent a great deal of time talking about it or thinking about it or trying to fight it, per se. And I think last year sort of allowed the conversation. And sadly, what I think happened was the number of people in my life who I would have considered people of really goodwill, uh, many of whom were Catholic, 
And when they just started saying, oh, this is all ridiculous. And again, I, I, as a sociology major, as you mentioned, uh, I studied this stuff and right. I know that there's not just one cause. So we just can't say, oh, it's because people are prejudiced that blacks remain in poverty more than whites or that there are more higher percentage of blacks in prison uh, than, than, than whites. Like, like it doesn't it doesn't work that way. There's many, many, many factors here. But I think overall, I think the majority culture, whites, they just don't spend a lot of time thinking about race because it doesn't touch their life. And the reason it doesn't touch their life, Jim, is because most white people don't have black friends. And how do I know that? Because I live in two worlds. And so I, I do weddings and funerals here at St. Raymond's for people that are black. And 95 to 99%, if not 100% of the congregation, is the same color as the couple getting married or the person being buried. And then through family and friends and people at other assignments, I do lots of funerals and weddings and baptisms for people that are white. And when I go to their events, everyone's white. So what's going on there? Sure, we can all say, oh, yeah, I have a friend that I used to work with who's black. Right. And yeah, and at work, you had lunch with him. But is he? are you close enough that he's coming to your mom's funeral? Is he close enough that you're coming to a wedding? That's changing because of intermarriage in our in our country. But for the most part, it's not changed. And so we care about the things that affect those we love, right? So, so why does someone get involved in a, a breast cancer walk? Well, because they lost their mom or their sister or their spouse to, to breast cancer. Why do people become advocates against drunk driving? Because they've lost someone that was a drunk driver. And so the majority culture of America, the larger white culture, I don't think that they're racist. I don't think that they are out to plot against Black folks. No. They just don't think about it. And when I share that with my Black parishioners, that most white people are not thinking about Black people and their plight, they're shocked. Because as Black people, they think and talk about it a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because, because it's their regular experiences, right? Things like things that, that you and I would never think about. If you've got a really ethnic name or a really ethnic voice, and you call and you order takeout food from a pizza place that's in a white neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. And you show up to order it, it might not be there because they might've thought oh, it's a prank call. It's a joke. The concern about if you've got an ethnic name right, and an address in a certain neighborhood, when you apply for a job, is your resume getting looked at the way someone else's was. Right. And again, this is not just anecdotal stuff. There, there's been actual research done on this. You know, what is the assumption someone makes? And again, I experienced this as a pastor you know, my parishioners are very generous. They're very generous in sharing their time and sharing their gifts and abilities and in sharing their resources. And so praise God, we do not have financial problems. Mm -hmm. But I have regularly priests say to me, are you able to make payroll? You know, are, are you on subsidy from the diocese? Basing that entirely on just the assumption that because we're a black parish, right. we can't pay our electric bill. So where does that come from? Bigotry. How does the church define racism? Again, in this document that you alluded to that the bishops came out with, which sadly, like many bishops documents, it goes unread. But but I'm just going to, I don't like to read things, but I want to read it because I think it's really no, good. No, it's fine. Racism sure. arises when either consciously or unconsciously, a person holds that his or her race or ethnicity is superior and therefore judges persons of other races or ethnicities as inferior and unworthy of equal regard. I think the key words there is unconsciously. Again, I don't think most folks are aware of it. I know things in my life that I was not aware of, but there, there was bias. There was bias. And so does it exist in our church? Yes, because the church is made up of people and people have attitudes. And I think one of the calls across our country this year 
was to sort of become aware of those biases. Absolutely. And I mean, I can say from, um, so for our, our company, Change in Our World has been um, very focused in on that. The, the, whole, the whole Omnicom group has. And so we've had some some uh, in small group discussions about it as, as employees. And most of us, you know, admitted, and this is primarily, a, you know, a lot of us are, are white staff, essentially, not knowing how to discuss it, feeling a, an uncomfortableness, because, as you say, it's not necessarily prevalent in our lives. It's not evident in what we see. But then also, I think there's an uncomfortableness in not knowing how to approach it. We haven't been taught to. It hasn't been introduced into everyday conversation. And so I think that's why these kinds of, of opportunities, having just having this conversation is, is incredibly helpful to me. Uh, obviously, we see this in our churches. And you know, obviously, we hear it around the country. But what forms of, of racism do you see that take place in our parishes? Yeah, I can share, I can share anecdotally things. Well, first off, sure. there would be uh, things like uh, here in Philadelphia some years ago. It's changed now. But whenever the Catholic charities would send out their posters for folks to donate uh, to the campaign, important mm-hmm. thing, the people that were serving or working were always white. Mm-hmm. The people on the receiving end were always black or Hispanic. So what does that say? The white people have the brown and black people don't. Hmm. That's changed. That's changed in recent years. But for, for a long time, that was one thing. Secondly, walk into most parishes and look around. The images of saints in the windows, in statues, they look like you and I. That's right. They don't look like my parishioners. Even when you look at Catholic materials that are out there for Bible studies, for faith study courses, it's only in recent years that folks have become very aware of that. And, I, and, and we regularly contact publishers and say, hey, your material is great, but it doesn't like our kids. Mm-hmm. Right? We're a church that's, and remember, African-Americans are a small number, right? We're, we're 7 to 10% of the Catholic population, African-Americans. So it's a small number, 5 to 7, I'm sorry. There are more Black Catholics, however, than there are Episcopalians in the United States. So it's not mm-hmm. an insignificant number. But Hispanics across the United States, 50%. So 50% of your Catholic market has brown skin, and yet you're putting out prayer books and picture books with all European kids. Right. Now, again, publishers have responded. Publishers have realized, okay, wow, yeah, I didn't think of that. I have parishioners who will go on vacation up in the Poconos, down the shore, and they'll go to a parish that's not here, and they go for communion, and they'll be stopped, not usually by a priest, but by a Eucharistic minister. Are you Catholic? You didn't stop anyone else. Right. He didn't stop anyone else or someone who is a Catholic and has a conversation about their faith. The presumption is that they were once Baptist. Like again, no one asks me where my, am I a convert, but the presumption is that an African-American Catholic is going to be a convert. So, so again, lots of different prejudices. Again, I don't think it's malicious. Yeah. I don't think it's malicious. It's unconscious in some ways, right? Isn't it? You know, it's almost subliminal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and and again, that's where in green. Right. And, and that's it's, it's kind of the expression a lot of people use that, like, the majority culture doesn't even realize, right, doesn't even realize that we're, we're making judgments. Right. And again, that's, it's been a great learning tool for me, because what's what's normal in America is often what's normal for the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, it doesn't say we need to rewrite everything, but, but we need to be conscious of that since we are a church, 
that is called to be the one body of Christ. And I think that's what the bishops in their, in their letter, racism occurs because a person ignores the fundamental truth that all human beings have a common origin and we're equal in the image of God. Mm-hmm. So once I make a decision that I prefer this to that, I'm saying one is greater, one is lesser. And, and sadly, there have been studies done even among children of color that when they're given an opportunity to pick a doll, they'll pick something with lighter skin. Hmm. You know, how, how do they pick that up? <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost in the air we breathe. Yeah. So uh, you you had mentioned to me that some of your parishioners drive quite a distance because they feel more welcome in your community than they do in their in their local neighborhood parish. You know, then and it's not lost to me the fact that you know we have we're two white guys having a conversation about racism. <laughs> it, 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 you know, I, I was reflecting on that even before we we started recording today. But I, again, I, I feel comfortable having this conversation with you because of our relationship and and because I, I know that you have so much experience on that. I, I wanted to tread lightly and be and and do this in the right way. So I apologize if. if having this just between two white people is, is offensive to anybody. I, I, I doubt it is. But again, that just goes back to my own ignorance and uncomfortableness and in, in trying to make sure I broach this the right way. But tell me how, um, or share with us a little bit, how as a white man coming into a black, primarily black parish, how, how did you welcome, how did you form this community that uh, has become so tight in drawing people from around, you know, around the region, not just in your own neighborhood? And certainly that was happening before I got here. My, my predecessor was a very, very gifted uh, priest, still alive, um, had spent many years here at St. Raymond's and had, had worked in the Black Apostolate before that. And he listened and, and he encouraged me to listen and to under, understand the stories. Yeah. Uh, again, just as you know, wherever I've ministered, I tried to do that. And again, this is something that's not unique to the Black community, right. but should be everywhere we go. You know, I, I spent the last two days out in the Diocese of Saginaw uh, mm. doing a workshop for their priests. Well, well, Western Michigan, Upper Western Michigan, is a very different place than Philadelphia. Yeah. And so listening to the folks there and, and listening to those priests and their experiences and their parishes and uh, what it's like to minister, particularly in some of the very rural farm communities, and what life is like there, and, and, and a conversation with, about with parents about the, or the pre-sharing that so many of the parents, like their kids, have all had to move away. That you know they might have had four or five, six kids, but not one of them lives there anymore. You know because they've chosen to be on a farm and they want to stay on a farm, but their kids don't. And that's that's the story in many parts. And again, they're, they're all people who look like me, uh, but right. but that's their unique story. Yeah. And so I think coming here, listening to people's stories, some just their, their natural stories, their own experiences. Many of my parishioners, the older folks, the, the elders in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, they would have moved here to Philadelphia as late teens, early 20s for work. They would have left the South, you know, at a, at a pretty rough time arriving in Philadelphia in the 50s and 60s, still before civil rights and making their way here. Some of the folks were the first Black family to move onto their block. And so talking about what that was like. Again, this is not a history book lesson. Sure. But when you're the first black family that moves on a white block in the late 60s in Philadelphia, it was it was tough. People okay. made known that they weren't wanting to do that. So, so hearing that story firsthand, I had a communion call, Jim, when I first arrived here, whose grandmother was born in slavery. Now, this one was in her 90s. Her grandmother, right? wow. But her grandmother had been born a slave. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation happened shortly after she was born. But her grandmother was born in slavery. So these are not, and again, I've had 
white friends say to me, oh, God, this happened so long ago. Jim, I grew up in a family where we were talking, uh, no, we lived in America, but we were talking about the British royal family as if they had invaded and imprisoned us. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's generations <laughs> back, but so many of the Irish carry this animosity towards the English right. for what they did to us. Mm-hmm. They, never, they never did anything to me. I, grew, I was born and raised in America. Right. Right. But we carry that stuff in our DNA. Why? Because we carry it in our family stories. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that, understanding that culture, understanding that food, and there's lots of things we talk about, right, that, that the folks have to educate me on, whether it's it's food, funeral rituals, totally different than, sure. than, 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 than what I grew up with, you know, summer gatherings and family reunions and, and hair products and skin lotions and using wash rags. And, and, and it, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Because again, by law for generations, they lived separately. They lived alone. It's just been a tremendous blessing to me to come to know this community as, as I've been blessed to come to know other communities. How has it changed your ministry or how, do, how does the ministry look that might be different at, at another parish? In ways in which you maybe have incorporated Black culture into yeah. your parish community, whether it be yeah, certain things that, or through ministry. Yeah, yeah. I right. think one of the things here is certainly you know the style of worship, uh-huh. um, and, and the document talks about that. Now, remember, the vast majority of Black Catholics do not live and worship in a Black community. Right, they're all over the country. So we don't, we, and even here at St. Raymond's, like we have three masses, but only one is real full on gospel music. Yeah. So not every African American wants, you know, gospel music, but certainly mm-hmm. music is a part of it, right? right. Um, and just like every other ethnic group, right? There's a style of music. And again, in the, in the those who minister to Spanish folks, Spanish speaking people, have got the challenge that they might have a common language, but the styles of music and the styles of worship from Mexico to Puerto Rico to Argentina to Colombia are, are vastly different, right? Yeah. And so, so our, our brothers and sisters who are ministering to our, our Spanish speaking brothers and sisters, even greater challenge. The preaching mm-hmm. style, you know, I know that if the day ever comes that I'm assigned to a suburban white parish, uh, my preaching style is going to have to change because I can regularly go 20, 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, the Pope would not be happy. He says we should be done in six or seven, um, <laughs> you know, but the, the call and response type of preaching. Yeah. It's very relational. So small groups really work very well here. People very much enjoy those types of relationships, you know, and, and again, raising up, you know, in our church, we've got lots of images of black saints. We celebrate the black saints. We talk about people from black history that are raised up and, and to, to make that my normative examples, right? And again, it's it's the humility to accept that. I, one Sunday, I, I gave an example of three people. I, I don't remember the topic, but the three people I gave were all white men. And an African-American woman approached me after mass and said, Father, I know they're all great examples, but not one of them looks like me or my family. Well, before the 10 o'clock mass, I went back and found three examples that fit the congregation I was talking to. So again, I slip into it sometimes. I'm just not even conscious myself. And, and so I'm just so grateful for the for, for the reminder. Well, that's probably, that's part of coming to it with an open heart. You can accept that feedback and not take it as a criticism of you, but it's just feedback and you, and you took it in a constructive way. So, I mean, so often I'm sure people will receive that kind of feedback and get very defensive, not just do a little self-examination and pray about it and and, uh, and let it see where it takes them. Jim, I had an experience, my first assignment at the, the, the parish in Northeast Philadelphia, where the, the deaf community met for mass. And once a month, there was a priest there who would sign the mass, but the other three weeks, there was interpreters. You start to pay attention to how often you say things like, listen, 
do you hear me? Oh, wow. When you're speaking to 40, 50 deaf people. Exactly. (laughs) Not the right phrase. (laughs) And similar here, right? It's a really strange place to preach about 4th of July. Oh, my. Yeah. Because on July the 4th, 1776, folks that look like most of my parishioners were not free. That's right. There wasn't any independence. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what Juneteenth is about. Right. Right. That, that, exactly. that it took almost 100 years more. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even when the gospel talks about prefer light to darkness, mm-hmm. is darkness bad? Right. Well, how, exactly. how is a nine year old girl who's got very dark skin hearing that? Yeah. Right. So again, it's just a filter to know your audience. Right. I'm not preaching to everyone, I'm preaching to this community who's sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, there may be folks who join us from other places. Great. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome. But our primary target is the folks who live in our neighborhood. That will remain our primary target because that's how the church works, right? This is my neighborhood that I have to try to get to heaven. That's right. So if someone, Father, were listening to this, a fellow pastor, brother priest, who maybe doesn't have, who has um, Black community within their segregate, no, I don't want to say, in, 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 you know, they have Black and white folks in their community. So it's not predominantly Black. How do you bring the cultures together or can you bring the cultures together so that we're inclusive of everyone in these kinds of uh, dialogues, whether it be liturgy, whether it be ministry? Have you, have you seen a lot of folks that are able to kind of incorporate it with both communities? Food. I, I think one of the things I get back pushed back on a lot. A lot of times, the the folks with uh, who are black who are worshiping in you know majority white communities are often immigrants from Africa, okay, um, who have settled, and their experience is vastly different than African Americans. Uh, I visited the Jewish History Museum in Philadelphia some years ago, and it talked about how you know the first wave of Jewish immigrants who came in the early 1800s hmm. had a vastly different experience than those who began fleeing persecution in Europe mm-hmm. in the early 1900s, right? They came for different reasons. They came with different experiences. And then the Soviet Jews who came in the 80s, who right. really didn't know anything about Judaism at all. And so the same with the different migrations, right? African-Americans arrived here enslaved. And then later, as others came up from the Caribbean for all different experiences. Mm-hmm. And then in more recent times, large numbers of folks, particularly Catholic folks from Nigeria, from Ghana, from Ivory Coast. Well, these folks have a different experience. You know, Amer- the American slave experience is not part of their story. So they often don't understand the civil rights experience because it's not a part of their family story. Now you get them talking about tribal rights in their country. That's a whole thing, but that's not spoken of here. So I think first off, recognizing who people are and where they're from, mm-hmm. right? And, and getting to know their story, just like we should with every every Christian. I do think there's value in every Catholic reading this, this document that we're talking about you know, from, from the bishops, because it speaks, you know, open wider hearts, the title itself says everything. But I think it speaks not only to the experience of Blacks, but also Native Americans, you know, who are often pushed aside and, and, and marginalized within the church, as well as Hispanics, right? And looking at the stories of people and how they got here. Of course, we have to do it now with, with all of our young white kids who are maybe returning to church or who are outside of the church, uh, a friend of mine has coined a phrase that they you know, they live on the digital continent, and so eventually they'll they'll, they'll migrate to an in person experience of church, right? And they're going to come with their own things that every people come from every other culture with as well. So I think my advice is to to get to know people, to find commonality. We have you know six African Americans on the road to sainthood. Do people in majority white churches ever hear about them? Right. Right. Does does like normalize celebrating things like 
the feast of St. Josephine Bikita. She was canonized the same day as Catherine Drexel. She's from the Sudan. But especially highlighting the lives of these African-American folks, the majority of whom were born into slavery, right? They were born mm-hmm. as part of their story. And so I think it's part of the healing process for the church that we normalize talking about these folks, maybe have images of them up and around, and, and, and those that talk about them in religious ed. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and just doing some of my research, there's a lot of a lot of great resources out there to begin that dialogue. There's mm-hmm. one from a group called Just Faith Ministries, where they take you through a series of, of questions and meetings and discussion around it. I, I saw that the USCCB has some great links and resources, and, and I'll make sure that I leave some links to that on the show notes of this episode. But um, it, it seems to me that just be, beginning that dialogue first in prayer you know, at first, I think it has to begin within within yourself, recognizing the prejudices, the unconscious and conscious that you bring, and then beginning to identify those in, in our own community. I, I was at a picnic not long ago, and there were several priests in attendance. And when the picnic was winding down, uh, the family whose house it was at said to me, Father, we're going to pack up some food for you, you know, for you to take back to your parish. Now, they've never visited my parish. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they visited the other two priest parishes. I said, okay. And I pulled the husband aside, not publicly. And I said, why do you want to send food with me? And he said, well, you know, people in your parish are hungry. I said, what do you want me to do? Just go knock on random doors and offer people leftover hamburgers? I said, I, I don't have people living on the street. You know, I don't have, like, I'll take it because I know someplace to use it or I'm going to eat it myself. But like, you didn't offer it to those two guys. Right. They've got hungry people, and they're hungry people are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Why did you pick mine? And he said, well, I know you're at a black parish. And I said, don't assume that because we're a black parish, there are people who are, you know, incapable of getting food for themselves. Right. And he apologized. And I said, it's okay. And I said, I don't want to embarrass your wife, so we'll, we'll, I'll take the food, and it will get used. But be conscious that you should have offered it to all three of us or offer it. Don't, don't say I'm ta- you're taking it. You know, so it's, it's, it's that journey. And you're right. It starts with each one of us saying, Lord, it, reveal this. You know, Lord, if there is bigotry in my heart, right? If, if there is prejudice in my heart, reveal it to me. Reveal it to me in my attitudes, in, in, in the comments that I say. You know, and, I, and I think that begins a long healing process for us. Well, and you, you had mentioned to me a while back, People have come to visit your parish and they've said, oh, I didn't realize it was so beautiful here. Another great example. Yeah, someone, someone made a comment not long ago, um, oh, the church is so clean. Do you make that comment when you visit other like, churches? Like, well, <laughs> right. Again, it, it, there's, an, there's an implicit bias that they're unaware of. And, and I think it's an act of charity to make them aware of it, right? If mm-hmm. I would tell them that they had toothpaste on their, on their, on their cheek, why would I not tell them? In, in a similar discreet and kind, gentle way, that what they're saying is implicit bias. Exactly, exactly. So just switching gears here for a moment, Father, you've talked, to, you, you've done a lot during the pandemic and trying to keep your parishioners engaged. And I'm always amazed your YouTube, you've got, you have one of the most active YouTube channels, I think, for a parish. Uh, and, and, you're, and, I, and I saw you just recently broke a thousand subscribers, yes, which is tremendous. And now you get to go live on, on YouTube, which is very cool. Can you share with us some of the ways in which you've engaged, kept your parishioners engaged throughout this pandemic? Maybe some of the ways in which your ministry changed and evolved yeah. a little bit? We were blessed, Jim, and that we had started live streaming some years before. And I will humbly admit 
It was not my idea. And I was, and I was against the idea, but it was particularly two guys in their, they're now in their forties. They were in their thirties then who just kept telling me, father, we we need to go this way. It's the way of the future. And I would say pre-pandemic, we would probably average 25 to 50 people watching on, on live stream. They were probably sick. They were out of town, whatever. And then during the course of the week, another 50 would watch. We used it for Bible study, those types of things. Well, when the pandemic hit, you know, no one else was there yet. And so boom, right? We were at 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 people. But it caused us to look at it because like, okay, we're no longer just streaming our Sunday mass. We're now doing a digital production here. Mm-hmm. And so reaching out to folks in the parish who had knowledge that I didn't have and asking them, a fruit of that has just become just a whole collaborative effort around digital campus that we would have never imagined. Mm-hmm. And again, it happened during the time of the racial tensions in our country as well. And because of that, people were joining us just to go to mass, but hearing sermons on racism and prejudice and bigotry and racial healing in the church that they would have never heard under any other circumstances. And it led to, we had to virtual conversation groups on different race topics and folks saying, I, I would have never done anything like this, but because I'm worshiping on Sunday, I decided to join that kind of stuff. Uh, we did the daily YouTube video. Now I'm trying to do it two or three times a week, knowing that not everyone's online this way. They're not all doing podcasts and webcasts. We, we also initiated a call to prayer at noon, an old fashioned pick up the phone and dial in. The deacon and I alternate and we lead people in the Angelus and praying Psalm 91 and some intercessory prayer. And we tell a joke and we make any announcements about what's going on. Because we were driving people to our website so much, we realized we needed a new website. So during during COVID, we, we revamped the whole website and made it more user-friendly. And again, a link to the, to the digital campus. Again, for the, the earning for in-person, we, we had communion services every Sunday uh, with limited numbers of people so people could still receive the Eucharist all through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We had drive-through prayer so that people could pull up in their car and their, Jesus was exposed at the front doors of the church that were open. I was available in the, in the lobby for confessions, uh, which was, it was a strange experience. I mean, eventually we'll look back on this and I've had some conversations with folks here who have a strong background in history, like how do we catalog this? And so we've, we've saved some of the decals that we had put on the floor, like, you know, six feet distancing and, and all of that, because it's, it is important because it was a, a heck of an 18 months in church history. Of course, now we're in this mode of how do we get people back? Uh, we're right. probably at 50 to 60% of Sunday attendance. Some of the folks, it's the kids and wearing masks and, and some fears there, which I get. So, you know, so we continue to make phone calls. We've done that all through the pandemic. My staff was just amazing and continue to reach out to people. We've upgraded a data system at this time also. So that's another reason for why we're making phone calls, just to touch in with people and see how they are. So it's just been a multi-pronged approach uh, with an amazing staff and parishioners stepping in in all sorts of ways to say, you know, how do we stay connected? How do we how do we be who we are called to be? So it's just been an amazing experience. I wouldn't want to go through it again, <laughs> but there, there's been lots of learning that probably could have only happened because of a pandemic. It does seem as though in talking with different priests and people at the diocesan level that it, it helped us to get to a place where we needed to be technologically, so to speak, with a website. And by the way, your your, your new website is beautiful. Um, we'll leave links to all that, the YouTube channel in, in our show notes. But it is amazing. It, it helped us kind of move off the dime on a few things, whether it be electronic giving, whether it be more access to parish activities online, or like you're saying, e- even people can dial in on the phone for prayer. I love that. So simple. I mean, everybody's got access to a conference line these days. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, and I think that that question of, you know, what is our goal and how do we get there? It's mm-hmm. basic pastoral planning, but invited us to sort of do that. At the same time, I was chaplain of a high school. And, you know, these are kids who don't go to mass usually. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of making them go to mass online wasn't really going to fly. <laughs> and so we found other ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did our, our own version of a living stations where I had a group of students who were in person dressed up as the characters in the station. We took pictures of them and then we did the stations across and just sharing the screen. And it was amazing the feedback, right? Why? Because they were seeing their friend dressed as Jesus. He happened to be the basketball team star, but students were reading the reflections, right? I'm not sure we've done it that creatively in person, mm-hmm. but being online forced us to really rethink things, right? How to pray the rosary in a way that was engaging kids, virtual May processions. And it was, it was awesome. Do you get over to see your alma mater across the street to a bishop, or not across the street, but over Bishop Shanahan very often? I have not uh, been there for some time. A friend of mine was the chaplain there, so we'd get in there. But uh, my parents yeah. are both deceased, and so I, I really don't get out to Shanahan a whole lot. Stay in touch with with friends on Facebook. There in Temple are certainly part of my history, but unfortunately not much a part of my uh, present day life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Father, thank you so much for uh, being on our show today. This has been just a, a tremendous education for me, and I'm sure for our, our listeners. And if they'd like to continue the dialogue or get in touch with you in some way, how, how can they reach you? Yeah, they can find my email on the, on the website, Father Chris Walsh. It's F-R-C-H-R-I-S-W-A-L-S-H at gmail.com. Wonderful. And uh, and thank you again. And thank you for all you do for the church, for me personally, and for, for all of us. So God bless you. Thank you. Amen. To God be the glory. I want to thank Father Chris for being on our show this week. Again, Father, you are a mentor to me, a spiritual director, but also a friend and somebody I look up to. And I'm so grateful that you came onto this show to really discuss an area that we all need to look at, an area that we all need to grow in. It was educational and inspiring for me, and I'm sure for all of our listeners. And for more information about the resources that we discuss, please visit the show notes of our episode page. And for the full video presentation of this episode, please visit our homepage at advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and the Pottery Studios for another great show. And once again, if you'd like to check out our daily prayer video, please visit my wife's webpage at kristenscrosses.com. And if you'd like more information about our podcast, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or YouTube. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for more than two decades. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Next week, I am proud to introduce members of my diaconate class, and we're going to have a roundtable discussion on the ministry of the deacon. I'm so excited about this. I hope you'll join us. Have a great week, everybody. Take care and God bless.